Mayor Francis Slay had been grappling for a year and a half over how to violate a specific provision in the Missouri Constitution. And on the evening of June 25th, 2014, he finally did it. We purposely created a clear, direct, legal challenge to the Missouri's unconstitutional ban on marriage equality. Two days before the city celebrated Pride Fest, Slay watched as the recorder of deeds put her signature on marriage licenses of four same-sex couples in direct defiance of a state constitutional amendment passed by the voters 10 years before. The marriages were done in private, in Slay's office. But the next day, he stood with those couples before the public and reporters to condemn what he called insidious discrimination enshrined in the state's constitution. I want St. Louis to be the sort of diverse and open place in which all families, gay and straight, choose to live, be creative, and build businesses. This is a human rights issue. This is a quality of life issue. This is an economic issue. It was a bold move for the mayor, says Mima Davis, a South City woman who married her wife Miranda on that June night. It was just a, a delight to have Mayor Slay feel so committed, so that he wanted to really risk, put, put his legacy on the line to have this happen. It really has impacted our lives so much. I will forever be grateful to Mayor Slay. For many, that moment solidified Slay's standing as a champion of the LGBTQ community and bolstered his progressive reputation. But others say the community needed him to push for more than just the right to marry. They say the mayor needed to do more to address issues like the disproportionate rate of homelessness among the city's LGBTQ residents. So we're going to pack two big topics into this one podcast, Slay's legacy around sanctioning same-sex marriages and his record on homelessness in the LGBTQ population and in the broader community. This is The Millennium Mayor, an exploration of Francis Slay's legacy in St. Louis. I'm your host, Rachel Lippman. And I'm bringing in St. Louis Public Radio's Nancy Fowler to help me understand how St. Louis gained its gay-friendly reputation and what Slade did to foster that culture. Yeah, St. Louis actually is an official gay city. We're regularly ranked by The Advocate, that's a national magazine for the LGBTQ community, as one of the, quote, gayest cities in America. How do on earth do you measure something like that? Well, it's based on things like having elected officials who are gay, LGBTQ-specific sports teams, and something called the HRC Corporate Equality Index. That keeps track of how many companies have non-discrimination policies that includes sexual orientation and gender identity. It's a title that the mayor is really happy to claim. Uh, we're a city that does welcome uh, people with different lifestyles. The LGBT community is very, very important to us. I promise to continue to build on a sense of tolerance that has already made St. Louis one of the nation's most gay-friendly cities. As a magnet for immigrants, for en entrepreneurs, for animal lovers, and gays. In the uh, top ranking, uh, for LGBT issues. So Nancy, take us through some of the things that the mayor's done while he's been in office to help St. Louis earn that distinction. Well, it started very early. Like even during his first run at mayor, he made concerted efforts to campaign in queer communities to solicit their votes. And it's long been known in the LGBTQ community that he has gay siblings. Two of them are living and one's deceased. I bet there's a lot of people who didn't know that about him. Yeah, and but it really helps explain why he's so supportive of the gay community from the start and really why they warmed to him. You know, in Missouri in the early 2000s, people really weren't coming out the way they are now. 
And most people didn't even know a gay person unless they were related to them. So basically, he's sort of like the most progressive mayor in the city's history before he gets elected? Um, well, not really. Um, St. Louis has always been relatively progressive. In fact, we had a domestic partner registry ever since 1998 when Slay was president of the Board of Aldermen. But Slay's stance on same-sex marriage, which is now called marriage equality, has definitely been in step with and really sometimes ahead of national trends. Okay, so give me an example. Well, in 2002, I was the editor of the Vital Voice newspaper. That was the paper for the LGBTQ population. Mm -hmm. And that April, when Slay had been in office about a year, the newspaper published an interview that he'd given to our chief freelancer, Colin Murphy, who'd been covering the gay community for really more than a decade. And then Murphy and I recently talked about that interview in which the mayor revealed his position on what people were then calling gay marriage. So I asked him, what's your position on gay marriage? And he said, I haven't been a supporter of gay marriage. I don't know exactly what that means. So then I asked, do you think it's the word that frightens people? And he said, yeah, I think it's the word. So then I pivoted, do you think uh, sort of call it domestic partnerships or something like that would people would be more receptive. And uh, Mayor Slay said, I'm in favor of some kind of domestic partnership legislation that would allow same-sex partners to have benefits similar to those people have that are married. I would support that. But I think marriage is an issue that a lot of people are having trouble with. That sounds like an incredibly safe and really just kind of political answer. Yep, that's exactly what it was. But Murphy points out that you have to really think about it in context that it was a political answer, but at the time, only one state, Massachusetts, had legalized gay marriage, and that other progressive politicians were also talking about the issue in the same way that Slay was. So that was really sort of just the progressive way to talk about it. Yes, and Murphy says that really the bigger picture at the time was the mayor's visibility. He's been at every Pride. He's been at every major LGBT event at, at one time or another. And, you know, you still will be at say, the Pride kickoff reception. And when the mayor of St. Louis walks in, you know, everybody just says, hey, there's the mayor. And it's just, it's an, it's an energy boost. And to have that affirmation and support uh, and to have him actually go out into the community and knows so many of us by name and knows our partners and our husbands and, and wives. All right. So he's out there in the community. The community knows who he is. He knows who they are. But what are some of the tangible things that he did? Well, year by year, Slay took incremental practical steps. In 2004, just two years after he'd shied away in that interview, as you heard from talking about same-sex marriage at all, he came out in a big way for marriage equality by lobbying against that ultimately successful effort to amend Missouri's Constitution and define marriage as being between only one man and one woman. As Murphy explains, the mayor's response really set him apart from many other state and local lawmakers. I think, all in all, he tried to accomplish as much as he could outside of state law, because obviously, you know, Jefferson City is not doing anything uh, to help us out. So we have cities like St. Louis and Kansas City who are trying to do as much as they can legislatively to make our little island of equality, so to speak, in a, in a red state, um, as uh, free of a place to live as possible for our community. So we should point out now that Slay didn't exactly have to start from scratch with LGBTQ rights. In 1992, about a decade before he became mayor, the city's non-discrimination policy for housing and employment was amended to include sexual orientation. And then in 2009, Slay signed a law that requires contractors working on large city projects to have anti-discrimination policies that include sexual orientation and gender identity. 
In 2012, he joined 100 other mayors from all across the country to support same-sex marriage. And then, of course, in 2014, he took that big step and sanctioned those marriages at City Hall between same-sex couples. I remember that. Like, those couples were all over the news, like nationally and internationally. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They'll never forget it. In fact, recently, I went and talked to Mima Davis, who we heard from earlier, and her wife, Miranda Dushek, in their home in South St. Louis. For me, what was so meaningful about this whole process was being out and forever being out. And forever when you Google my name, these pictures are going to come up and we're like our authentic selves in every aspect of life. That was Dushek. She and Davis both work for Lincoln University Cooperative Extension, and they also own a flower market. So they're like married and working together and Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. 24-7. 365. Yeah. But at the time of their marriage, they'd actually already had what they call a spiritual ceremony. And they kept that news pretty close to home. But the second ceremony would be a lot different. We weren't out at work at the university. So we were we were able we were able to call our bosses two hours before the ceremony. So she called her direct supervisor. I called my direct supervisor and said, hey, by the way, you're going to see us maybe in the paper. How did that go? Like, what was the response to you being out in such a big way? Um, Our work was pretty quiet. Um, They did, you know. Private private congratulations. congratulations. No official congratulations. Um, But all of our friends, all of our family, all of our market customers were just, I mean, the support was phenomenal. Um, we we got stopped in the street. We got stopped in the grocery store. Thank you for doing this. And then we heard from, you know, other people like, oh, you know, my daughter's gay, or you know, and, and they really felt um, heard and supported by our actions. So Nancy, clearly this wedding was emotionally important to Davis and Dushak, but practically speaking, did they get special protections? Did the other three couples that got married along with them get any special protections? Uh, No. Because they were married in Missouri, they did not. Um, Yeah, marriage equality was still against the Missouri Constitution. So Chris Coster, who was the state's attorney general at the time, actually sued the city, but the mayor agreed not to perform more weddings. And then a year later, of course, the U.S. Supreme Court made marriage equality the law of the land. So now that that's the case, everything's cool, right? Nope. Uh, Sometimes actually exercising that new right opens up a whole new set of risks. Like what? Well, say you go to work to change your paperwork after you've been married to reflect your new status, and that outs you. You could even get fired. It's still legal in Missouri to fire someone for being LGBTQ, or you could even lose your apartment or the house that you rent. In the city, though, gay people do have those employment and housing protections that actually precede Mayor Slay, but that he supports. So that kind of fits right in line with what he's been doing all along, is I champion these issues. I want the city to be a place that's friendly for the LGBTQ community. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got marriage equality settled however imperfectly, and the spotlight in the LGBT community turns to other issues. High-profile battles over access to public bathrooms brought the issue of transgender rights to the fore, as did media reports of spikes in violence against transgender individuals. When it came to supporting transgender individuals, Slay again provided a symbolic salute. In 2016, he raised the transgender flag at City Hall and at other city offices. That's a powerful gesture to be sure. St. Louis was only the third city in the United States to raise the transgender flag. But Nancy, help me kind of understand what else the mayor did in sort of a more practical sense, other than, again, just being visible. 
Well, Slay was actually addressing transgender rights long before they were really in the national or even the local spotlight. In 2009, he supported federal laws for stricter hate crime statutes that would include gender identity. A year later, he signed a law that added gender identity to the list of protected categories in housing, public accommodations, and employment in the city of St. Louis. But not everyone is convinced that Mayor Slay did all he could for the LGBTQ community. Colin Murphy, who you remember did that interview with Mayor Slay for The Vital Voice, is now the editor of Boom Online Magazine for the LGBTQ community. He puts it this way. I would have liked to have seen more done in way of uh, transgender protections, especially around public accommodation. I think a symbolic effort would have been to make restrooms in City Hall government gender neutral, possibly. Murphy's not alone in that assessment. And to look at that a little bit better, we're going to bring in St. Louis Public Radio's Jenny Simone. Jenny, what did your sources tell you about Slay's protections for the LGBTQ community? Well, the main critiques I heard were that Slay's administration fell short of impacting the day-to-day lives of queer St. Louisans, people facing obstacles to more basic needs than the right to marry. Sayer Johnson is the co-founder and executive director at the Metro Trans Umbrella Group, or MTUG. It's an organization that helps the local trans community connect with basic needs, resources, and support groups. Visibility is great. Visibility is is necessary and it's beautiful and it's empowering. And visibility doesn't get my folks jobs necessarily or get my folks housing or health care. A lot of the trans people Johnson works with still face discrimination despite the city's anti-discrimination laws. Oftentimes our documentation and our presentations do not match. So that can be a barrier to employment. The way that we present and navigate in the world is not always ways that folks appreciate. And so going in for interviews is oftentimes a barrier for folks. They are unable to be themselves in their employment places, um, regardless of discrimination policies that are in in practice, it takes money to inquire with a lawyer or pay a lawyer to help fight any sort of discrimination. It's few and far between for us to have those sort of resources to do those things. Give us an example. Sure. So take Don Devin Ward. She's lived in St. Louis her whole life and connected with Johnson and MTUG in December 2016. At 31, she can't remember a time when she didn't face challenges to finding consistent employment in the region. What I do is I basically, like any other ordinary person, I go online or go in person and fill out applications and stuff like that. And I keep in touch with them by calling them by phone. And it's they're always telling me basically the same thing. They have not looked at my application yet, that they haven't had time to. She believes it's because of her gender identity. I go trans full time. I don't plan on going out in public as a man. Since high school, I've been the way that I am dressing as female because that's the only way that I feel comfortable. Ward says her inability to find a job makes it hard for her to find housing, which in turn makes it hard to find a job and on and on and on and on. She's not the only one facing that cycle, though. It's a familiar situation to many experiencing housing insecurity. But it's important to note that homelessness disproportionately impacts LGBTQ folks. How do we know that? There's not a lot of data on homelessness in the adult LGBTQ community, either nationally or in St. Louis. What we do have is a lot of anecdotal evidence. I spoke with Mo Costello, the owner of Mocha Bee's Coffee House. She's been involved with winter outreach for the better part of the last decade. Winter outreach is an entirely volunteer-run effort. During extreme weather conditions, volunteers seek out people on the streets and offer them warm clothing, food, and or rides to emergency shelter. The most vulnerable 
as far as I'm concerned and that I can see, are trans women right now today. And we can't even have a shelter city owned that houses women. How can we go into any subsets? How can we even go there? It just feels like we're really going backwards. In St. Louis, like a lot of other cities, if you don't fit neatly into a male or female gender category, it can be really hard to find emergency shelter that makes you feel safe. A study by the Center for American Progress found that when they asked homeless shelters across the country, only 30% would house a transgender woman with other women. And it's nearly impossible to cater to one especially vulnerable population when the city can't solve housing insecurity in general. Okay, so let's tackle this broader question of homelessness. Back in 2004, Mayor Slay and Charlie Dooley, who was then the St. Louis County Executive, they announced this 10-year plan to end chronic homelessness. It was going to be implemented in 2005. Um, Jenny, help us understand a little bit what, what was in this plan. Sure. So if we distill it down to the basics, it aimed to create more permanent housing for the chronically homeless. And from there, offer the supportive services that people who are chronically homeless often need. What do they mean when they're saying chronically homeless? Sure. So anyone with a, quote, disabling condition who has either been continuously homeless for a year or more, or who has had at least four episodes of homelessness in the past three years. Disabling conditions are things like substance abuse disorders, physical or mental disabilities, or mental illness. So this isn't someone who's just been evicted and doesn't immediately have a place to go. This Mm -mm. is someone who's been out on the streets for or in some kind of non-housing setting for a really long time. Exactly. So it's now 2017. That means the plan's had about 12 years to work. How are we doing? Well, if the stated goal was to eliminate chronic homelessness, the plan failed. Really? Failed? Yes. All you have to do is look at the numbers. Every year on a specific night in January, the Department of Housing and Urban Development goes out on a single night and counts as many homeless people as they can find. Um, It's a point in time count. In 2005, they found 167 chronically homeless people on the city and county streets. Last year, that point in time count found 186. And the numbers haven't really budged on the broader homeless population either. That shouldn't be the case. That's what St. Patrick's Center CEO Lori Phillips told St. Louis Public Radio in the summer of 2016. St. Patrick's Center helped develop and execute the 10-year plan. And in all honesty, St. Louis doesn't have a huge problem with a population of homeless people. I mean, for a community our size, this is a, this is a solvable problem. We're not in New York City. We're not in San Francisco. We don't have tens of thousands of people who find themselves homeless. There's a lot of different reasons the plan didn't work as expected. And to explore a few of those, we're going to bring in St. Louis Public Radio's Camille Phillips, who, by the way, is not related to the St. Patrick's Center CEO, Lori Phillips. Camille reported on the fate of the plan in 2015. Right. And I found that on one level, the plan was actually a success. It helped create more housing for those who experience chronic homelessness. By the end of the decade, St. Louis and St. Louis County together added about 700 housing units for people who are chronically homeless. As far as why the number of people who find themselves homeless in the region have stayed the same, Slay has argued consistently that the problem goes beyond the city. Here he is on St. Louis on the Air in January 2016. Uh, This is a regional issue. And, and I've said this a lot. Unfortunately, the rest of the region pretty much looks at this issue as something that St. Louis is, the city of St. Louis's responsibility. We're seeing county municipalities 
in many cases, when they find someone homeless in their communities, they bring them into downtown and they drop them off uh, uh, out on the street in downtown St. Louis. That is the reality. I've heard that so many times I can almost recite along with them word for word. <laughs> but it's not just Lay who says that. Luann Orris is with the Gephardt Institute for Civic and Community Engagement. She's been working with homeless communities in St. Louis since 1998 with both the city and private volunteer efforts. As soon as one person receives housing, they're replaced by somebody else because St. Louis is known in our region for excellent services. So you have people from all over the Midwest region coming to St. Louis when they find themselves homeless. And getting back to the mayor's reasons for failing to meet his 10-year goal, besides pointing out that the city serves the needs of the entire region, Slay also argues that the 2008 financial crisis meant a lot more people faced housing insecurity. Some of the social service providers who helped put together and execute the plan think it was flawed. Others say it was too ambitious, which is something the mayor has also alluded to. The, the likelihood is uh, there will always be you know, uh, a level of chronic homelessness but we, are, we have not given up on the possibility of ending it. Tom Burnham of Peter and Paul's Community Services says the plan focused too much on physical buildings instead of finding other ways to provide the long-term support that people who are chronically homeless need. Burnham managed Peter and Paul's shelter for decades. There's not enough there for the need. I don't know that the government will ever have the resources to do that, which is why you know, I go back to saying, uh, it, it's ultimately critical to bring the private sector back into. We need to allow it, first of all, and we need to incentivize private developers. And I know they're there. If they, if they could make a, a reasonable profit, they'll do it. And for what it's worth, the national approach to addressing homelessness has changed, and so has the cities. They're now focusing on trying to get people back into housing as quickly as possible, instead of focusing on people who have been homeless for a long time. The idea is to provide a few months' rent until a family can support themselves, or better yet, prevent someone from becoming homeless in the first place by offering emergency rent and utility payments. Sure, but all the good excuses in the world have still left advocates for the homeless who don't work for the city pretty unimpressed. Here's Mo Costello again after I asked her to grade Slay's administration on their work to combat homelessness. It's hard to grade somebody that, as far as I'm concerned, has just been totally absent. Slay just stays out of the fray. I don't know where he is. I don't know where he's been. I don't know what he's done except for cater to the central corridor. Camille, can you think of a time when the city's been a more active player than just kind of signing on to this plan and signing contracts for service providers? Well, in the last couple of years, the city has expanded its support for walk-in shelters. That's the kind of place people go when they need a bed for the night. In 2015, the city contracted with Gateway 180 to make 50 spaces available for women and children. And last year, the city opened the Biddle Housing and Opportunity Center. By day, it's a place people can go to get a warm meal and connect to the city's network of homeless services. By night, it's a men's shelter, the first owned by the city. But isn't the jury still kind of out on Biddle House? It is. Uh, Biddle really hasn't been open long enough for us to see if it's made a difference in the size of the homeless population in St. Louis. But Biddle is getting its first big test right now. 
Slay's administration opened Biddle in large part because it was trying to make up for the loss of shelter space if it closed New Life Evangelistic Center. That's the private downtown shelter routinely housing more than 100 people a night. And it was known to house as many as 200 or 300. And now New Life is closed. Right. After more than two years of fighting, the city has succeeded in shutting down the shelter, at least for now. The city's argument for closing New Life was simple and compelling. The shelter was operating illegally. Here's city attorney Mike Garvin. They have no permit at all to occupy the property, and they've been simply using it for more than a year now uh, without any permit whatsoever, and that's a violation of city law. But New Life founder Larry Rice's argument is equally simple and compelling. Here he is in November 2016, a day after the city gave him 30 days to apply for a new permit or face eviction. If we were to totally shut down and do what he told us to do, these people, they can't get into Gateway 180. They're full. Biddle House only takes men. Women and children will be out on the streets, and they'll be pushing them from place to place. But even though New Life is closed right now, Larry Rice says he'll keep fighting to reopen. Here he is in late March, just before the shelter closed. We just see this kind of, though, as an interruption in service. We're still moving ahead on the legal aspects. We have not lost it all. We haven't even gone into the state courts yet, in the federal courts, where I believe we're definitely going to win. So much of the city's fight with Larry Rice has been over walk-in shelters, but the whole conflict is an old story about what happens when a city starts to redevelop certain neighborhoods. In St. Louis, that's Washington Avenue, the lofts and entertainment district. And New Life has been in that neighborhood since just the 1970s. Just because there's an all-star game Here's going Lou on Rose in St. Louis doesn't mean that city. we just sweep everybody and keep them in our building. So. I mean, there's been a lot of tensions and a lot of us in the field of caring for people who don't have a home where we've had those tensions with the city. I mean, so where where should we, where are they going to go? Where do people go? So Slay's been praised for his commitment to revitalizing St. Louis' Central Corridor with things like Washington Avenue, with arts, with law spaces, with entertainment districts. But others are arguing that the focus on big, shiny projects has come at the expense of individual people and the needs of the neighborhood and the housing. We'll look at that next time on The Millennium Mayor. You can listen to all of The Millennium Mayor episodes at stlpublicradio.org slash millenniummayor. Millennium Mayor.